0: Welcome back to America's leading higher education podcast, The EdUp Experience, where we make education your business. Hosts Dr. Joe Salustio, Elizabeth Leiba, and producer Elvin Freitas bring you the brightest and most influential minds in higher education today. We explore innovations, ideas, and issues in higher education and beyond, and hopefully have a little fun along the way. Now let's get to it. Incubata is a global media agency that specializes in helping colleges and universities surpass their enrollment targets by providing a suite of marketing services that schools need to maximize brand awareness and application submissions. With their dedicated account teams, full campaign visibility, and a global reach, Incubata can help drive and improve your student enrollment efforts in the U.S. and abroad. Incubata is currently offering a free audit of activity and a customized geographic targeting report to help your school learn about new opportunities to recruit students. To learn more, reach out to Luke DeMarco at ldemarco at incubata.com. That's L-D-E-M-A-R-C-O at incubator.com. Welcome back everybody, this is the EDIP experience where we make education your business, interviewing the brightest and most influential minds in higher education and beyond. We do like to have just a little, little little bit of fun along the way, not too much though, right Liz? This is Dr. Jo Lustio. how are you?
1: I'm doing phenomenally well, thank you for asking.
0: You know, it makes it made me chuckle. Our guest that I'm going to introduce in a minute said uh, he's a professional talker, and then I thought, me too. I have a BS in speech communications, which is basically a BS in BSing uh, for my undergrad. Um, but we so we we know a little bit about that here in the BSing part of the of the Edup experience at this point, don't we, Liz?
1: Speak for yourself. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I have but, no idea what you're talking about.
0: Well, I'm what ta- Well, I'm talking about that we, you, and I. We've gotten in our groove. We go yes. back and forth. We're yes, talking we about all things education, higher yes. ed. And then all of a sudden, the conversation shifts to 90s hip hop. Uh, we don't and yeah. how that happens and evolves. I, I have no idea.
1: I'm not sure, but I, I'm here for it. And I love it.
0: Well, you know, I'm on an alternate microphone today. My uh, my wife uh, kicked me out of the bedroom, a.k.a. the Solusio executive offices. Gotcha. So, you know, I'm going to apologize in advance for any echoing or, you know, uh, but you know how that is. You're in your laundry room a lot of the time.
1: So, uh, you know, yeah, but I've migrated. I actually got a promotion. So I'm at the kitchen counter right now. See, so, me
0: um... too. OK, so we're broadcasting <laughs> live from the kitchen counters of the Ed of Experience office. There you go. Well, our guest today is uh, something else. We're really excited to talk with him. Uh, He is leading some of the most forward-thinking efforts in education and higher education today. And his name is Jamie Marisotis,
2: and he's president and CEO of the Lumina Foundation. Jamie, how you doing? Very good. By the way, best intro ever of any uh, podcast that I've done so far. So we're already off to a strong start, guys. <laughs> uh, hopefully which part I say which part? The BS and BSing or the <laughs> Yeah, that was the best part. I'm going to use that one in a, in an upcoming speech, no doubt. Oh, okay. Well, that's what we'd like to keep at 100 here at the head of
0: experience. I'm, <laughs> I'm dying laughing. Um, oh, well, well, let's talk, Jamie. We've got so much to talk about with you. Um, the work that you're doing at Lumina Foundation to say that, um, it's, uh, it's well-documented and followed within education. Higher education would be an understatement. But you guys do have some really incredible goals. And I want to talk about the big one. And that's 60% of adults getting educated, higher education, higher education, a certificate, something that's going to leave them in a better place through
2: 2025.
0: How do you do that? How do we do that? Give us the big picture.
2: Yeah, it's a it's a really good sort of opening question because, look, we're just one organization, right? We we see ourselves as a catalyst. And, you know, we're an independent private foundation. We've got an endowment. We've got assets. We make grants. Uh, but our resources certainly couldn't create the large scale systemic change that's needed. So, you know, our efforts, 60 percent of Americans having a high quality degree certificate or other credential by 2025, that goal has been um, our north star our motivating force since 2008 that requires us to be an organization that um, takes chances takes risk that others won't take in order to achieve large scale change that's needed and I-, I mentioned that point in part because in philanthropy you know we've got we're very fortunate in the united states we've got many large foundations like lumina but one of the limitations of philanthropy is that we tend to Limit our own ability to take risk for reasons I don't fully understand, right? Because we're not beholden to to voters, uh, we're not beholden to shareholders. We are independent entities that have large asset bases. So I think our role at Lumina Foundation in trying to catalyze the country towards this goal is to take the risks that others uh, can't take. And so you we've said about because you're is that uh, Jamie? Let me just so politely interrupt you and say, is that is that
0: because? of the restricted nature of of philanthropy or you're saying because you because organizations philanthropic organizations are afraid to take those risks because they're dealing with other people's uh, money to to affect change
2: why is that do you think you know, I think it's a combination of things. There, first of all, there's many kinds of, of foundations, right? There are private foundations like Lumina, which are independent assets. There are family foundations where the family plays a role. There's corporate foundations. There's community foundations, right? Foundations in local communities where people um, allocate resources to that community foundation to solve, solve problems in, in those communities. But in the case of foundations like Lumina, I think we often don't take enough risk because of fear of failure. And I think that uh, when you have this much money, you feel a tremendous sense of responsibility. But my view is that part of that responsibility is to take risk. And you know, we're still one of the only private foundations in the country that has a goal, like we have a time limited quantitative goal to try to catalyze the country towards large scale change. To me, many of these foundations, particularly the ones like Lumina that have a very narrow mission, all we do is post high school learning Um, We should do more to be very ambitious about what we're trying to catalyze, not for ourselves, but on behalf of the social mission that we're trying to serve.
0: How is, so this, it's a big goal, right? It's a lofty goal. It's a, it's an incredible goal because if it gets accomplished, I mean, that changes, changes the world, changes our economy for the, there's so many positive changes. How's, how's coronavirus, how's the pandemic affected that, that goal? Um, and what can be done to catalyze uh, the things back in the right direction?
2: Yeah, you know, I think, you know, at the macro level, it's important to say what's happened before the pandemic. Before the pandemic, we were making tremendous progress on the goal. So when we started this work in 2008, um, about uh, 38% of Americans had a degree certificate or, or certification. And, and by 2018, it was 51%. So we'd achieved real progress, 12 million more adults having degrees or other quality credentials than they did in 2008. Then, you know, the, the, um, the pandemic comes along and you've got this sort of confluence of things, right? It's the pandemic, it's the reckoning around racial injustice, and it's the significant um, uneven effects of what happens economically, particularly to women and women of color as a result of the pandemic and other, other factors that have led to, I think, the the daunting um, challenges that that we see ahead. Now, um, I think that we also have an opportunity, right? So what we've seen in the last year is something that we had never seen before in a recessionary environment, which is that enrollments in higher education went down. Prior recessions, enrollments always went up, particularly in community colleges. Uh, This year, they are down. They are down significantly in community colleges and they're down a little bit in four-year institutions. The main reasons for that, we think, are that life just got too complicated, particularly for adult learners. You have children at home doing remote learning. You've got uh, yourself or people who you care for who, get, who got sick because of COVID. There were just too many factors associated with uh, the pandemic and the broader environment, as I said, the racial injustice and other issues that I think um, have uh, conspired in a way to create significant headwinds. However, I think as we get control of the virus and I'm more optimistic than I was a few months ago because of the vaccine, because of some of the other things that I think are changing, that we will get a better handle on the virus. The question is going to be, will people come back? If they come back, I think our chances of achieving the goal are still pretty good. But the question is, will they come back? Um, I think in some ways the answer has to be they must because the need for talent is growing in American society. And what the pandemic has done is it has knocked many people out of the labor market for whom those jobs that they lost will not come back. So they will need to get reeducated, reskilled, retrained, whatever you want to call it in order to help uh, power their own future, but also power our collective um, economic and social future.
0: You know, it's interesting because I agree. What you said is so well Summarized, and I always and Liz has heard me say this before. It's the perfect storm of problems: the health-related problems with with COVID, the financial problems that came as a result of the pandemic with closed businesses and people losing their jobs. Uh, uh, you know, in 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 that kids staying home from schools, huge on adult learners. I mean, the amount of pressure that puts on families uh, in the household is untold. And then you add in the social justice issues to where you know the environment is is just more disrupted and, and it's this perfect storm of reasons and justifications of why it's just too hard right now and too hard to do things that you want to do, right? Go to school, whatever, get get a certificate, get an education, because there's all these reasons that to not do it, to wait. And that's, I think, what we're seeing. And we've talked to a lot of college presidents for over 60 now. And it, that is a very common theme. Like it, the question to your point is, how do we get those students reengaged? Have they disappeared completely from the radar? Um, and, and how do we take care of um, them in the way that they need to be taken care of? Uh, and those are the really big questions out there. And, and Liz, I want to bring you in because the, the Lumina Foundation and, and Jamie, you do a lot of social justice-focused work right now. Um, and, and that's an important part of getting these students back, I think, is to let them know that we want them back. What do you think, Liz?
1: I agree, and I think there are, for me, always having taught in schools that tend to serve students that are typically coming from marginalized backgrounds with their first generation, whether they're coming from uh, circumstances where maybe the K through um, 12 environment was not as preparatory as it should have been. Perhaps they're dealing with financial challenges that are difficult to overcome, I'm curious about your opinion on college affordability and how we can better serve students that from a financial perspective, especially students that are coming from these marginalized backgrounds. A lot of times one of the main Issues is there the the return on investment perhaps and and not even just a return on investment but just overcoming the idea that college just seems totally unaffordable. I know that Lumina Foundation does a lot of work with uh, textbooks and and the the OER materials which are phenomenal. That's one of the things that. Anytime I teach a class, I don't think I've ever taught a class in 10 years where one of the questions on the first day is not, do I have to purchase a textbook? And I think sometimes people underestimate just how challenging it is when you have single moms or students where it's like, do I pay my light bill or do I buy a $200 textbook? So can you speak a little bit toward college affordability and what some of your thoughts are on what we need to do better as a sector in order to address that for our students?
2: Liz, you hit on a really really important point that I want to underscore, which is that you've actually addressed what I call the three-legged stool um, of opportunity that we've got to create for the marginalized populations you're talking about. And it is a combination of factors, right? You've got to provide the right kind of academic support, the right kind of social support, and the right kinds of financial support. And what we've tended to do with all of these reform efforts in K-12 education and higher education over the course of decades, is zero in on one part of the three-legged stool and not understand that the other two parts are often co-equals in the equation of the lives of these individuals. So, in K-12, we've gone through you know two decades now of substantial school reform efforts designed to create you know uh, uh, you know uh, better learning outcomes. All of those things. Totally agree with that. But you know what? The learning outcomes aren't enough. If you've got challenges between, you know, at home and if your family can't, can't provide the financial support that you need to help you live a stable, secure life and then allow you the opportunity to give you the motivation, to give you the optimism that you can actually go to college and do so in a way that's affordable and accessible and gives you that chance to, to succeed. So it's the three-legged stool that I think is really important to think about as we think about these strategies. The affordability part of the stool, what, you know, which is the, the, the main focus of your question, I think is absolutely essential because of the long-term trend that we've seen in declining affordability. No matter how you slice and dice the data, the reality is that college is less affordable today than it has ever been. And so you have to just confront that reality. Now, uh, let's we can talk about the return on investment but the affordability has declined. It has declined in part because tuitions have increased faster than the rate of inflation for almost 40 years, with the exception of this year, by the way, that this is the first year that that, that that trend was broken. The average tuition increase was only about 1% this year, but it's a long-term, I think, debilitating trend. The second issue is that the financial aid, federal aid, aid provided by the institutions, the support that states and, and private actors might provide, has not kept pace with prices or the cost of living. And then the third part, I think, is the question about you know what you are buying uh, for your dollar and, and what it gives you um, in terms of what that credential represents and means. And so that third part, I think, is the part where there's a lot of conversation going on right now because of COVID, right? So we've seen a massive shift to people uh, learning online, remote learning and the question is so what am I paying for what what is what is this what is my dollar paying for or what is that financial aid dollar paying for and I think in on net this is good for the system of education good for for, for higher education because I think it is calling the question about ensuring that we can demonstrate that the return on investment is real now I'm an optimist I believe that higher education presents tremendous outcomes for, for people who, who get these, these degrees and other credentials. Uh, to, you know, to put it differently, absent a degree, a certificate, or other credential, your chances of making it into the middle class and staying there are very, very low. And so uh, that's just a reality of American society today. But we have to do so in a way that takes advantage of what we know, how people live and work. You've got to meet the learners where they are. Not force the system, force them into your model, meet them where they are, and provide the learning that they need to help them be successful in working in life.
1: And then how can we get higher ed to wrap and I guess if we knew the answers, we probably wouldn't even have a podcast because it would already be solved. but how can we get higher ed to wrap its mind around that? I think higher ed, like Joe and I always say there has been a great amount of, agility and pivoting in some areas where I was even surprised like wow pivoting to online within a week some schools within a few days some schools and definitely I will say that there have been some movements and adoptions and embracement of technology and embracement of text uh test optional or, or different uh things that I didn't think I would ever see even in my lifetime but how can we get the the industry as a whole to move and even push the envelope even further and be super agile so we can meet these students where they are like I I think about textbooks I have to go back to that because it's just such a sticking point for me because textbooks have gone up 800 percent and I think I posted uh about that like a few months ago and I think people thought it was a typo the idea that a lot of people don't even realize I've seen Lumina resources and text and I'm like this is literally equivalent to anything I've seen in any I won't say their names but any major publisher so how can we get you know the mainstream um, institutions and some of the more traditionalists in the sector to embrace things that are totally outside of what we would say it's a traditional mind frame as far as higher education is concerned like Textbook optional is a big thing at one of the community colleges I teach for. People would say, heresy, textbook optional. Yeah, because all the materials in the course, so they don't need a textbook. Like, and, and I think a lot of schools are just like still resistant to some of these things that just a $70 textbook could be the difference between groceries for somebody for a week. You know,
2: That's exactly right. So f- first, I want
1: to underscore
2: what you just said, because you're right. And textbooks are a good illustration. And you know, we could talk about lots of other ways in which it's not matching what the, what the students need, right? We're not necessarily providing um, the education on the schedule that the students need. We're not right. providing it in a way that provides the childcare, the transportation, the other support that they need. We're we are not meeting the students where they are. Textbooks is a, is a really, really good example of that. Part of that has to do with the fact that we don't have the right kinds of incentives in the system. So, um, you know, one way to think about this is that in, in many states and in, in public institutions, community colleges or public four year institutions, what you've seen is an increasing use of these models that they call outcomes based or performance based funding. Now, there have been many different iterations of this. And frankly, in the early versions of these outcomes based funding models, they didn't get them right. Uh, the key, I think, though, is to, for the states to allocate resources for the outcomes that the state needs. So what what are the outcomes that the the state needs? The state needs to make sure that people are prepared to do work that's meaningful, that will allow people to earn a living wage, but also contribute to society. The state has an interest in ensuring equity, and in my view, particularly racial equity, which I hope we talk more about. And and the state has an interest in ensuring that we uh, focus on the ongoing learning needs of, of the learners. So in other words, that it is likely that they're not going to go once, but they are going to go to a post-secondary institution several times over the, over the course of, of their lives. So what do you incentivize when you're allocating state budget money to the institutions? And you can incentivize the institutions to not force students to pay for those textbooks that they don't need, to make sure that the students are, are getting the support that they need for their transportation and their child care or what have you. And to um, you know, ensure that um, the throughput of, through the institutions, that students are actually getting credit for what they know and they can do. And they um, can get through the institution in as expedient a way as possible so that they can apply that credential, that degree or, or other credential, uh, to, uh, to improving our own life and, and improving our shared well-being. so. Outcomes based funding is 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 one way to do that. The other way that the institutions, I think, can um, can address this is to see this as a competitive opportunity, who are our competitors in the marketplace and how how can we be More pro student more more pro learner uh, better meeting the students where they are because that's where the students are going to go in a in a marketplace where we've seen declining enrollments the students, you know, the 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 buyers. You know, it's a buyer's market and the institutions better compete really well with each other on ensuring that they are providing the highest level of service to these learners or the students are going to go somewhere else.
0: Higher education spending in paid media has increased immensely since the start of the pandemic. The shift towards virtual instruction and the importance of location based targeting is driving much of the change and it's only going to continue. Incubata is a global media creative and marketing automation agency that specializes in higher education by providing marketing services that schools need to compete today. With a focus on holistic strategies, seamless integration, and optimizing performance, Incubata helps make your media spend go further so you can get real results. As your semester comes to a close, it's a great time to review your current media's performance, and Incubata wants to get you started by providing a one-time technical audit that will provide details on how you can improve your current media activity, as well as a customized geographic targeting report that will help you understand which regions could provide the best opportunities for a specific program or degree. To learn more, reach out to Incubata's higher education specialist, Luke DeMarco at ldemarco at incubata.com. They always decide with their feet in the end. Um, Jamie, I want to talk just this. You said some things about um, future of work. And, and I want to bring up your book, uh, which it looks amazing. And I'm going to absolutely go and get it. and I encourage everybody to do that. It's called human work in the age of smart uh, machines. And so the, the context of the book or the point of the book is, you know, look, AI and, and technology is going to take over a lot of jobs in the future. And there needs to be an investment or reinvestment in lifelong learning in the human skills, that machines will never have or at least if they do we're we're headed for terminator and uh, and you know something else so hopefully they don't uh, have those human skills in the long run but so humans really need to we need to to build out those human skills that separate us the critical thinking the problem solving and so on and prepare ourselves for that future so talk about a little bit about the book why you wrote it and and give us the the once over
2: you know uh- briefly, you know, so if you think about so I'm I'm uh, the president of Lumina Foundation. I've been here 14 years. I ran a bipartisan federal commission. I ran uh, a non partisan think tank in DC for many years. So I spent my life at this intersection of learning and work. and my objective has always been um, how do we make it more inclusive? How do we serve more people? How do we uh, make sure that it's better in general for individuals in society? But for the three of us, who've participated on, on the higher ed side, I think we increasingly are being asked questions, which is, so what's education for? What What is this system ultimately all about? And my answer is increasingly that we have to prepare people for the work that only humans can do. That That's human work. And, you know, you're right. Um, AI and technology is, is changing work in ways that Um, They're able to do, the machines are able to do more and more of the tasks that people used to do. You know, I'm not so worried about the, you know, the robot zombie apocalypse (laughs) as I am about the idea that we've actually got to do a better job of preparing people for the things that the machines can't do. Machines are good at a lot of things, speed, pattern, repetition, reduction algorithm, all those things are really good, but machines don't understand subtlety and nuance. They don't understand human interaction. Um, And so, you know, what I'm interested in is what um, I call in the book, human machine complementarity. The idea that what humans are good at is complementary to what machines can do and vice versa. And what we need to do is make sure that we develop those human traits and capabilities. So it is the kinds of things that you're talking about. It's our compassion, our empathy, our ethics, our ability to communicate and collaborate and to be creative. And, you know, at the end of the day, um, the post-secondary learning system Um, is best designed to help us meet one of our core objectives as humans that's very different than machines, which is for us as humans, work matters, right? So we want to work. We're looking for meaning and social mobility and satisfaction and dignity. And we in, in higher education need to make sure that we ultimately do that. How do we do that? Well, we need to make sure that we are preparing people in a very deliberate way for work and for life, in other words, for ensuring that we are preparing people for the work that only humans can do. And so uh, over the course of this sort of virtuous cycle of learning and earning and serving others that I think is part of the the human work ecosystem, we've got to make sure that we're developing and deploying quality learning systems that actually do that, that actually make sure that people are prepared to do those increasingly human-oriented tasks as uh, technology uh, changes the world, you know. One final footnote on this: COVID, back again to the pandemic, has accelerated all of that, right? So the people right. who lost the jobs um, in in COVID, many of those jobs are not going to come back. Employers will um, um, automate them. Uh, you know, we'll will use the opportunity of of AI to to change that work. And I think we're only seeing an acceleration of of what we saw. You know, I wrote the book. Um, largely before covid and i finished it just as covid was starting and yet here we are sort of seeing all of these trends merely accelerated based on what i was thinking you know a year and a half ago
0: well and i hope there is no uh, robotic apocalypse let's just put that in there and if there is liz you have a lot more popularity than i do so i think you're going to get you're going to get it first What? Uh- <laughs> <laughs>
1: Why would
0: say, I f- get it first? Because they're going to find you before they find me. I just oh. want to give many more LinkedIn followers. And so that if they, they, you know, replicate the algorithm and they'll find you really fast. then I won't. Be well, I'm getting, I about a, I'm getting an advantage. I'm getting one advantage I have is that I'll outlive you in the robot apocalypse. Just
1: well, us. at least you have that advantage. I'm getting about a thousand followers a day. So <laughs> I don't, I don't really know. If uh I, I don't know if that is an advantage, I guess if we're thinking robotic apocalypse, but what one, one thing I did want to talk about when we talk about advantage disadvantage is when as a, as a sector, as we're thinking about preparing students for uh, this global workplace and and how we are able to utilize um, education as that um, that accessibility piece that helps people to um, our students to become more socially mobile and and be able to to uh, provide for their families. I'm really interested on your thoughts about the the social equity, the social justice, the commitment to how we better serve our Black students, how we better serve our other um, students of color. We um, have been speaking a lot about the idea of this multicultural majority, how our students, for the most part, that, that demographic is going to continue to grow and expand and in the next 10 or, or 15 years is going to make up the majority of the students that we serve. But it doesn't seem as though, and this is just my observations after being um, like you serving this, this, and, and Joe's been in the in the uh, education sector for a long time as well. I haven't noticed, I've noticed that, that we seem to talk a lot about equity. We seem to talk a lot about justice and, and finding ways to better serve these students, but we still don't have the outcomes that need to match that. We still don't have the faculty and the leadership that need to match that. What are some of your thoughts about what we can do better as a sector in terms of social justice and equity and, and inclusion and belonging? Some of the things that we talk about on campus, but there seems to be a little bit of a, a disconnect between the messaging and actually how to execute those. Whew. how much time do you have? Okay, all right, good. The rest Great of the life. day, and the rest of the day, all right. Right.
2: <laughs>
0: exactly.
1: Well, let,
2: let let's start, with um, an acknowledgement. The acknowledgement has to be, the starting points in these conversations has to be that what we have seen up until this point is stark leadership failure. And that's been combined with policies and beliefs and actions um, that are unfair and that are intentionally, that have been specifically and intentionally designed to disadvantage people of color. So Black, Indigenous, and people of color are, are have been held back from the education and skills needs that they that they desire. So you have to
1: start from the premise. Can, Jenny, that, that, yes. I'm sorry. Can you say it louder for the people Here we in the go. back? <laughs> I mean, because it's, that's just the that's, reality, right? You, you have like to start there. the key point that I think a lot of people like to brush over that part, intentionally marginalized. People don't want to acknowledge that. I feel myself, my heart starting to race because I think that sometimes I I always compare it to being
0: married. Liz, you got (laughs) to scroll the roll just a little bit because your mic's picking up a little feedback.
1: Yeah, you know what? (laughs) I compare it to a relationship or a marriage, right? If I'm in a situation where someone's wronged me, let's say Joe has wronged me. And I say, you know what? Impossible, that would never happen because he knows better. But if that was to happen, the first part would be us coming to this table and sitting down and talking about it, like, Joe, you did this, I, I, you know, I, he would have to apologize. He would have to tell me what he's gonna do better in the future. And then we could move better with that plan of action. And I just don't feel that we're able to do that as a society. And in education, we just totally don't even admit that SATs or these exorbitant prices on cost of tuition, we don't admit that any of that is even a problem. We just say, hey, let's just move forward and access, right?
2: Right, right. It's a it's, it's ahistorical, a factual, if you will, about the reality of of life in America. And unfortunately, a lot of other countries around the world today. So, so you have to start, I totally agree with you, because you have to start with this commitment to racial justice. And it's not just about words, right? So that, you know, we're, we're, we're really good in education at making broad statements and stating our intentions, et cetera. You have to look at what are the challenges that exist. So I go back to my three-legged stool, right? There's academic challenges, there's social challenges, there's financial challenges. You have to look at all three legs of those stools and say, why have Black, Indigenous, and people of color been denied opportunities that allow them to be more successful academically? Why have they been allowed to, um, to face consequences that have to do with lack of social support? Why have they not had the right kinds of financial support? And if you don't acknowledge that, if you don't understand that these racial disparities are part of an intentional pattern over an extended period of time, and that unfortunately that pattern has widened in some ways, then, um, then you're not going to be able to, to address it. So of course, back to education, I think quality learning opportunities are the key, right? You have to have provided quality learning o- opportunities that address those three legs of the stool so that you can get the equitable outcomes that not only black indigenous and people of color need and deserve, but that we all benefit from because every you know everyone benefits when society has people that have more developed talent, that they can apply to their own individual lives and to, to society. Okay, so so what, is, what does higher education do? This back to your original question, which I, you know, which I veered from. You know, well, so we've got to take into account the fact that I call this in the book, by the way, wide learning, right? So everybody talks about lifelong learning. Absolutely. You know, it's, you, you've got to focus on over the course of a lifetime, you gotta focus on wide content, right? That was a, a, the other point that I made, which is that the nature of work is changing so much. But you've got to focus on this idea that the people who are learning represent a wide array of races, human traits, capabilities, ethnicity, gender, immigration status, all of these other things. So you know, f- if we're preparing people for the work that ho- only humans can do, human workers have to reflect the totality of society so that all of us share in the benefits of that human work. So so higher education has to do its part to actually. Um, Turn the tide on that. So, so you know, how do we do that as educators? Well, step one is we have to question the assumptions behind the, the current system. You got to put the students at the center, and you've got to make sure that you acknowledge the racial injustice in and in, inequity. Secondly, I think you've got to focus on the fact that we have to be clearer about what we expect our students to know and be able to do um, in, in, to, in, in order to be able to get the degree or other credential that they, um, that they are coming to our institutions for. So, you know, putting equity first, that's really important. Focusing on what uh, people know and can do, especially focusing on building those human traits and capabilities really, really big. And then the last thing is, make sure that you see all of your students and your learners as part of that virtuous cycle of learning, earning, and serving others. Um, Make sure that your students are doing learning integrated work and work integrated learning and service integrated work on your campus all the way through. That's what's going to prepare them for this lifetime of meaningful work that people desire. You can't just simply say, get your 60 or 120 credits. Good luck. Let us know how it goes. You have to, you have to see these individuals as, as people who you are deploying um, into society with new knowledge, skills, and abilities, but they're probably going to come back Because the nature of human work is changing so much that you will, you're going to need to provide that platform over and over again.
1: I'm going to pass it back to Joe, but I just want to just one last quick question. And this is going to probably take just a minute, just to, I guess, affirm or just see if I'm thinking the right way. But do you feel with the pandemic that we're, we're, feeling more empathy and maybe able to serve the students better? I think a lot of us are kind of going through our own challenges. Do you think that that is helping us turn the corner a little bit on how we view our students?
2: Yeah, I, I think the, the pandemic uh, revealed some things and I think it revealed things in society and it, and it revealed things certainly in, in higher education. You know, I think that we probably didn't understand even though we should have that uh, the disproportionate effects of COVID are related to all those injustices that we've talked about, right? So who are the, you know, so-called essential or frontline workers? They're they're people of color. They're they're, they're women. You know, what have we seen in terms of the COVID death rates? Twice as high for African-Americans as they are for, for others. You go through the whole thing, and I think the net result is a growing awareness and empathy for the fact that we need to be more explicit, more comfortable, uh, particularly, and I'm speaking now myself as a white male, as, as, as. as a a society in addressing racial inequity head on and not putting it into, you know, I call it the serial list, you know, we need to deal with race and income and blah, blah, blah and blah, blah, blah. No, let's be clear, all of those things are important, but race is a major, major factor in the lack of opportunity that people have in their lives. Let's be comfortable saying that and addressing it. And I think that COVID um, has opened a window of opportunity I don't know how long that window of opportunity uh, will exist, Liz, but it's opened a window of opportunity that I really think we in education need to take advantage of. How do we? How do we? um, What you're saying is so awesome, and Liz is going to
0: jump through the through the recording and high five you. I think. um, (laughs) I am. um, But you know, and I look at Liz and I as an example. You know, my, my, I came from a middle-class family. My parents said, you're going to go to college. You will go to college. That's it. Or else you will, you will basically leave the house at 18. You'll go to college. We'll pay for four years. And that's it. And then we're going to just sort of wash our hands with you and you go out and get a job. Liz. She, she got to college, but she came from a, a all-Black neighborhood. She got very lucky with your undergrad. Listen, if I'm misquoting your, your journey here, she had a, a, a scholarship to go to the University of Florida, um, but that that was very lucky. I mean, she earned it, but it was a totally different path to get there. How do we get given the racial inequity given the fact that students uh, that higher education may has priced itself out of the range of a lot of people from lower economic quartiles how do we get them to take their shot how do we get them the access is it is it credentials beyond the degree is it short course training i mean how do we get and going back to the original goal that we talked about at the beginning how do we get to the people to allow them to take their shot at a higher education?
2: Yeah, it, you know, it's a it's a it's an essential point. You know, Liz, I'm the first in, in my family to, to go to college, um, mm-hmm. a first generation a college student that came from an immigrant family. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I wrote an article about this a, a few years ago about how difficult it was for me to navigate the system mm-hmm. with no one in front of me to help. Point me along the way, right? I, and so yeah. I, I had to navigate it my my myself, because there was just nobody there. I was lucky. I really was lucky. I was I was incredibly fortunate. And luck uh, to to the to the point that that Joe was just quoting you on is a terrible societal strategy, right? That like that is not the way we should be approaching this. <laughs> exactly. Um, and and I. Better to be lucky than good. Only the goes so far. Of race, which is more significant than all those other things that I talked about, given what we know about um, racial bias and injustice in American society. So, my point simply is that this is not a unique story, right? This is a part of what we need to address at a systemic level in American society in order to deal with that. From the higher ed perspective, I think it's critical that we put it, you know, out front in in front of ourselves, if you will and say, we have to address this, not as part of that serial list, but as a primary factor in what we see our purpose is as higher ed institutions. Why? Because we say, we say in higher education that we are, we are, um, we are preparing people for work and for life in an increasingly complex uh, world. If we don't address race as a part of that, then we are fundamentally failing. One of our core tenets of what we say about ourselves and about our role um, in in American society. More broadly, I think that, you know, we have to focus on the fact that in higher education, we are actually engines of economic and social opportunity. So our own measures of success should be, are we doing a better job of educating African-American, Latino, uh, uh, Native American, um, other, other people of color and in, in marginalized communities? Are we doing a better job of educating uh, people who um, have those, you know, black indigenous or people of color traits and who are also low income or are the first generation in their family, et cetera? And to me, that's really important to have in front of us and not see it as a byproduct of what we do, but as a focus of what we are about as post-secondary institutions.
0: Well said. Uh, I I love that. And there's data that
1: is it right Mm -hmm. there. It shouldn't be a byproduct. That should be the thing. And I think it's been so much of an elitist thing where it's like we're up on the mountain. We're on the the top of the hill and come to us as opposed to us going down and serving. We're kind of we're doing you a favor. Come see if you can get it. And and I I, I love that you framed it that way. It is our job to go down and give it to them so that they can aspire. And it, it helps everybody all of society
2: well let me it it, it is meeting our what we say is our own objectives right yeah and i want to ask
0: you one more question and then i'm going to pass it to liz to to close us out Uh, jamie and, and my question revolves around so much of what we talked about today but there there is a question of of um the value of a higher education specifically a degree a higher education degree, right? There's, I don't have to tell you this, you you probably know, but there's technology companies that say you don't need a degree. There's people, uh, the general public that are just going, you know what, it's just not going to give me, to your point, it's not giving me anything that I can't get on my own through an apprenticeship or through going to work for several years, whatever it may be. Where do you stand um, either your individual opinion or that st- stance of the Lumina Foundation on what is the value of a college degree? Is it still valuable? Should people still consider that college degree? Or is it just one of many options at this point?
2: I think um, in, in, in many ways, as much of a um, critic or reformer as I am of the system, I believe college degrees and certificates and certifications, the other kinds of things that we can produce in higher education have never been more important. We learned that lesson in the 2008-2010 recession. right? So I think you both know this, that when the recession hit, um, we saw, obviously, massive uh, job loss. And when the jobs came back, um, what we saw is that the vast majority of the jobs, over 90% of the jobs that came back, that were created after the recession, went to people with a degree, an associate degree or higher. Um, So that's really important, right? So the the employers were voting with their feet. Um, For the people, by the way, with bachelor's degrees, they actually never lost jobs on net in the recession in 2008, 2010. Job growth actually continued for people with bachelor's degrees during that recession. Now, this is a decade later and some things have changed. And one of the things that's changed is that the use of technology has accelerated the pace of dislocation, if you will, at a societal level. So are college degrees worth it? Yes. However, higher education is putting itself at risk if it doesn't adapt to the changing needs that people have. So if you are preparing people for jobs that don't exist, for opportunities that are declining, you are not doing them a service. You know, what are the opportunities that exist? Well, again, it's this combination of, you need to know something about a content area. So you have to have technical knowledge in areas where there is current opportunity but you also have to have what I call durable skills. You've got to have, and it's those things that relate to your human traits and capabilities. You've got to be a strong critical thinker and a problem solver and a communicator, someone who demonstrates that they're ethical and empathetic and all those things. To me, that is what the colleges and universities need to do because there will be a point at which you can get those kinds of things elsewhere because technology is providing more and greater opportunity For people to learn on their own time, at their own pace, um, and using increasingly sophisticated means in order to be able to get there. Liz?
1: This conversation has been so enlightening, and I've really enjoyed it. We appreciate all of the insights you share. I could talk to you all day, Jamie, because (laughs) everything that you've said resonates with me so much.
0: Jamie's team just called, and they cleared his schedule for the rest of the day, (laughs) so we have my
2: podcast (laughs) until (laughs) 5 Eastern. (laughs) <laughs> I told you I'm a talker.
1: Yeah, and and I love it because what you're saying is so real. And I think sometimes in education, we're so used to kind of like being very polite and, and not necessarily saying the hard things that need to be said so we can serve our students better. Because that's the bottom line. We're here to serve the students. That's really what it boils down to. So I love that you have that perspective and that attitude. And I, I, I know that there's going to be a lot of value from everything that you share today across higher education spectrum and leaders that listen to this episode. So I'm really proud to have been a part and honored that you were here with us today. So... We want to be respectful of your time. We want to wrap up with just the last couple questions in just making sure we touch on everything, which would be, is there anything that we miss? Anything that's happening at Lumina Foundation that you want to highlight, things that we didn't get an opportunity to speak about? And the last question would be, what do you see as the future for higher education?
2: Well, you know, first I'm I'm really delighted by this uh, opportunity. It's, it's been it's been a great conversation. You know, the 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 work at Lumina that we are doing right now very much relates to what you were saying earlier in the conversation, Liz, which is we we need to do a better job of preparing people for the opportunities that are there now. So we're doing a lot of work right now on short-term and innovative programs at community colleges, as well as helping more adults complete associate degrees. Both of those are really important. We continue to focus, of course, on helping ensure that people complete bachelor's degrees, very important. Bachelor's degrees are still in many ways um, the ticket to uh, much broader opportunities, but getting people on the pathways of learning and ensuring that they get credentialed along the way is really important because it is like a ratchet. And as you ratchet further up, you get more and more benefits from having more knowledge, skills, and abilities that are signified by these credentials that allow you to be successful um, in 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 life. Um, you know the 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 one thing for your um, for your listeners to think about is you know what's coming next. You know where where is where is the ball headed? Because this is not a static enterprise, and you know it's very important for higher education to see itself as an engine of economic and social mobility going forward. So you know my book is about preparing people for human work in this increasingly technology mediated world. That's really important, but it's also, true that there are other things that we need to make sure higher education does. And the easiest way to state this is that we are living in a world of increasing, you know, I call them ominously existential risks, right? Uh, racial injustice is certainly one. So is climate change. So is authoritarianism, by the way. And these existential risks have to be things that we prepare our students, our communities, you know, our faculty, our staff, um, our our constituencies for, because as learning institutions, we have the tools that allow people to be able to combat climate change, combat authoritarianism, address racial injustice. And so I think we need to be thinking about our missions in higher education. You know, we've talked about, you know, um, um, teaching and and research and service as the sort of function of, of the higher ed institution for 100 years. But the reality is addressing existential risk is something that we've got to take more seriously going forward
0: hey everybody we hope you enjoyed that episode of the Edup experience to learn more about the edip experience please visit our website at www.edupexperience.com and subscribe to our email list please share this podcast Head over to Apple and please give us a rating and review. We appreciate your feedback. And of course, subscribe to the Edup Experience so you're notified when our episodes drop. Here at the Edup Experience, our goal is to make education your business. Thanks for listening.